Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. So put on some gaudy jumpers, sit morosely with a paper crown slipping off your sweaty head and reconsider where your life is going. Yes, it's Christmas. I'm here with the always festive Thea Lenarduzzi. Thea, Buon Natale, is that right? Yeah, 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 Go- it is. Google, unless Google has lied to me. <laughs> it has not lied. What did you it's say? It's reliable. Alguri. What does that mean? It, you know, good wishes. Alguri. 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 It's lovely. <laughs> We're here also with some other TLS Christmas elves, indie rock star, Lucy Dallas. Hello, in English. Hello. <laughs> Hello. The doctor and refugee from the 18th century, Michael Keynes. Hello. Thank you for letting me back in the studio yet again. And Minister of Fun, Ros Deneen. Hi. And I also learnt you are also a rock star. Just seconds ago. We all are, in, in a very real sense. <laughs> in a very sarcastic mm. sense, you all are. But in the mm-hmm. actual sense, you sang on an album. Sort of, yeah. Can we not talk about it, please? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that only adds to the mystery. Which, and now, for the, for the next 50 times that you're mm-hmm. on this podcast, yep. we'll be able to explore that. You look keen about that. So we're going to do two things today. We're going to talk about our favourite arts of the year. And we're also going to do something we do on this show anyway, all of the time, particularly at the beginning. We're going to talk about food. Yes. Your expertise. Yes. One of your areas. <laughs> it sounds like that sounds mean, doesn't it? One of your areas of expertise. We're going to talk about Christmas dinners. Yes. Are we a bit? Yeah, a bit. And our favourite food in literature. Yes, more of that. And oysters. Yep. And other things. And other things. Okay, let's all do sorts. that. Okay, arts first then. Two arts of the year. A relatively new tradition in the paper is to ask a bunch of experts, even though we do not as a nation believe in them anymore, for their picks of 2018's best films, exhibitions, plays, operas, ballets and the like. Lucy, you're the doyenne, it says here. The if arts you say so, <laughs> it says here on my script, you're the doyenne. Yeah. Yep, indeed I am, Stig. You've had some people... Make well, recommendations. You say this. Yeah, they haven't all filed yet, have the they? If we're, we're brutally honest with the situation, we're recording this just before the paper's ready. Live arts journalism being the exciting <laughs> medium that it is. Up to the minute. Up to the minute. Mm-hmm. If I said that everybody had filed, I wouldn't be telling you the truth. No. So, 
some people, not <laughs> in some, some few people, <laughs> have. I'm trying not to do a number. Yeah, of those who have, have filed, Lucy, what, what has interested you <laughs> the most? Lucy, how many one, people have filed? One person. More I mean, I can one. get down to nitty gritty roles because <laughs> no. I'm, I'm looking forward to your piece. Yeah. <laughs> is Roz in it? Yeah, I Roz didn't know that. Roz hasn't filed oh, yet. Oh, for God's I, sake, I honestly didn't did know. Roz, Let's take this offline. Roz, yeah. <laughs> Roz is going to file on this podcast now, yes. effectively. Well, kind of, yeah. yeah. Somebody recommended Tate Britain's All Too Human exhibition. Was that which the only was, person that No, not the only person. <laughs> which one was that? Remind me of which, that. So we reviewed, Susan Owens reviewed it for us. It was like a sort of hundred years of figurative painting, British no, not just British, I don't think, actually. It was at the Tate. Yep. It was 100 years of figurative painting, so there was a lot of Francis Bacon and Lucian Freud, oh. but not just them, all sorts of people. Everyone said the Polar Rego was wonderful and lots of stuff was brilliant. And that's, People like figurative painting? Yes, that's the shock revelation <laughs> that's of a 2018. Classic, is that a classic mark, the Tate, that's just the bums on seats type approach to well it had a lot of big names in it and i think some people thought it was a bit loose because it was called what was it called all too human something to do with life you can tell i've done my research i have done research but not in this area okay. some people felt it was a bit baggy it was just some paintings or from the past figures. hundred years well and one of them was of a dog i mean that's a figure but i thought it was just human but they weren't only human but i think the quality of what they got was so good i.e. there were so many Lucian Freuds. Are people and, still interested in Lucian Freud? That feels a bit 90s. I think they are. And Francis Bacon and Paul Rego and Coldstream, is it? Who was very much a, a different sort of thing. And Paolozzi. There was You're a looking lot. at Michael Cain. Sure. We at know Michael. he's entirely the wrong century for him. That's true. It's, it's much too late for any Michael. of these people have been born yet. <laughs> and on the Lucian Freud point, I think there's a huge retrospective coming next year. So clearly he's... So he's obviously really bankable. Yeah. yeah. But he became big again. Did he? I say, in my mind, I associate him before the YBAs. You know that that whole sort of nineties movement. He became big again in the nineties. But maybe that's just when I heard of him. For the but first. I think then, for, and then from that point, he became a kind of you know granddaddy of the scene. Yeah. I think. I mean, I'm not sure he's ever gone out of fashion, really. Go on, give us some more. When you say some, so uh, I talked a, a to... No, Thank I talked, God we've got some here. I talked to our TV correspondent because he's in the office Andrew and Allen. I made him talk to me. He's going to talk about Inside Number 9. Ah, this What's is that? the League of Gentlemen thing. Yeah, yeah, where they have a separate... Very clever. ...sort of play every week. It's like a genuine... They? And they've done it live as well. Yeah, there was the Halloween special that was live. That was very clever. Mm. And apparently they do one. They did one of Shakespeare. They do a Macbeth thing. Yeah, I mean they do. They they riff on loads of things. It's very it's very meta. Is it enjoyable? It is. It is. I well, I think it's a little bit hit and miss. Although mostly hit, very much mostly hit. Do you um, have to like the League of Gentlemen to like it? No, no. It's very. It's, it's a bit very different actually. Yeah, it? it's still I mean, got it's that kind of horror, horror yeah. undertone. I, <laughs> the League of Gentlemen. I feel it's one of those things that you respect but don't like. Oh, I love the League of Gentlemen. Do you? Mm. See, Some I, of the League of Gentlemen is, is, think, it's is wonderful. It's clever and it's weird, yeah. but it doesn't make me... But so when were... you say, is it enjoyable, it's with that doubt about the League of Gentlemen in mind. You yeah, know, exactly. It's quite right. possible. We're, we're, it's too clever. To it's clever, really it's clever and, I'm sure, beautifully written. But is it But some of it is funny. Un- There's that vet that like kills all the animals. That's funny. <laughs> no? Thea thinks it's funny. <laughs> Both from the north, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Both from the north. Oh, we yeah, have a bit yeah, of that. Clearly, no, yeah. no, but it is, some of it is really funny. The other thing is interesting with this doing shows live. Because mm. I interviewed Lee Mack for Front Row and they're doing Not Going Out, the sitcom, and at Christmas they're doing it live. Are they like they now do with Mrs Brown's Boys? So they just do well, it once, sort of once a year and I was watching them rehearse. Yeah. And it's a sitcom and it was quite a complicated setup they were doing and they just make themselves do it as a play. 
mm. live on telly. Didn't they do that with Friends? They've done it with EastEnders. They've never done it. That's not no, they've done it with one comedy, or they, did they do it with Big Bang Theory or something? There's one of those big ones they? they did it with. It's once, kind of and a, it was a throwback to the way all TV was. Yeah, there used to, yeah. there was, a, you know, a long time ago, decades ago, there was no point in reviewing the TV because you'd never see it. So people barely ever wrote about what was on last night. There's no way you'd catch it. Mm. And there have been various, you know, throwbacks. There was a version of the Quetomus experiment. Was that maybe 10 years ago? David Tennant and a few other people were in it fluffing their lines. And it was the joy of seeing oh, them trying yes, to do it live. Yes, yes, and EastEnders, do you remember in EastEnders? The, they the did actress one called, live one. They did a live one and I they remember. called it, I think one of the actresses said to Ian Beale's character, she said, oh yeah, what, what do you think, Ian? And she called the character by the name yeah. of the actor. And they didn't, none of the actors knew which of the three endings they recorded was going to be the one and t- they'd practiced until they did it live. until it was live. Oh so they my didn't, God. Yeah. Is this gimmick? Because I was trying to, is it, is it a gimmick or is it fun to think? You get a bit of the jeopardy of the theatre, don't you? That's the, presumably the point. I think that's the idea, a bit of edge to it. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also that thing of, I think it's probably very rare these days to have a viewing experience where you know that, you know, a huge chunk of the population are sitting down to watch this thing at the same time as you and you're united in that viewing experience. Yeah, mm. which still happens at Christmas. I mean, not to me anymore. I, stop, I don't watch Christmas TV anymore. When I was a kid, you were so excited about... The only time you see a film, I seem to remember. I don't know if this mm. is just... I'm, I'm slightly gossiping. How old over. are you, Steve? <laughs> 38. 65. Yeah. Do you remember this, Michael? You know, Go on. They'd be, like, be like the big Christmas film. Yeah, they'd, they'd and be everyone like, would sit down yeah, and watch and it together. And, and, and you couldn't yeah. get it anywhere else. So, yeah. And it would be... It had been in the cinema probably in February of the year before. And it would be a really big one, like E.T. or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But did that, that still happen? I'm sure it does. Probably. Well, they still show a lot of but films. No but Doctor Who tends to be a bit of an oh. event like that, I think, doesn't it? Well, that well. this year has been moved from Christmas Day to New Year. Has it? And there will be no new season in 2019. Why? They will do one, but they're holding it till 2020. Okay. That's the latest. So Gosh. with your arts of the year, Michael, before we get, get to... And I, don't if you, I don't know if you're going to recommend... Would you have recommended Doctor Who as one of your arts of the year? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's been controversial. There's a lot of people who uh, reacted weirdly to the idea that the Doctor, an alien with two hearts who has lived for hundreds of years, could be a woman, which doesn't really seem that... Yeah, it's not realistic, realistic. is it? Let's face it. A lot of people reacted strangely to that, but I think there's a a deeper lying problem with the show in that it had become very strange and convoluted. You could only really follow it if you're an avid fan taking notes and watching out for odd continuity things from five years back. It was completely ridiculous, and they'd messed up all the central relationships and I really like this new one it's a breath of fresh air Jodie Whittaker she's, she's great the, the you've, you've met her yeah, you've I interviewed, and I said she was Doctor Who yeah, we and got it wrong. wrong. Yeah. Doctor, Doctor Who, who's, yeah. who's counting? People count. Apparently John Smith, count. occasionally yeah, the character was called counting. on yeah. it. So. According to my correspondence, people do count on that, that sort of thing. <laughs> but as it happened, one of the writers of an episode in this new season, Joy Wilkinson, wrote, I think, the best play I saw on the London, maybe on, on the London stage, but certainly on the London Fringe this year, which was called The Sweet Science of Bruising, and it was just down the road at the Southwark Playhouse. It was a slightly probable situation for very different women come together in the middle of the 19th century and discover boxing and sort of beat one another up but it's very well done it was really energetic real sort of shock very up close and and i think she's she's a a sort of writer to watch really is it too right on because i i only see bits of the sort of response but there was an allegation and it may just be sort of relatively right-wing people on twitter make this accusation but it's so obsessed with identity politics that mm-hmm. almost the stories become a, a vehicle to talk about Rosa Parks there was a story about Rosa Parks That's right, yeah. so talking about gender inequality or racial inequality did, is there any truth to that as an argument do you think? Well there may be something in it that people 
don't like on that score, but that's always been an element of the program. Has it, it really? was educational from the very beginning. The first story was in 1963, was not the Daleks, it was called An Unearthly Child, and they end up going back to a kind of caveman setting. Very vague, but weird. But then the stories were about the French Revolution, or they might be set in sort of Merry England or mm. something. So they might not be completely serious history lessons, but that was always there. And of course, it's always about good fighting evil. I don't really see that there's too much of a problem with that. And actually, you could take... Because... Because they've gone for very discrete stories this time round, rather than one story arc that you have to follow closely from one episode to another, you can take a selection of those episodes, and I don't think you'd find anything in it that was a sign of political correctness gone mad. The last one was had absolutely no sign at all of some kind of history lesson or yeah. lecture or sermon about it. I, I think people are picking and choosing what they want I'm from sure it in that respect. Right. I'm mean, sure there's been some terrible episodes, but on the whole, I think it's been a quite it's a success. A right, who wants to offer another Art of the Year? Roz, do you want to? Uh, yeah. Is this going to appear in your Art of the Year that well, you set to file <coughs> to Lucy, or do you want to do different ones? Let's I mean, do I'm... live filing right now. Yeah. Should I do different ones? <laughs> I'll transcribe. Yeah. My Arts of the Year were, what well, I'm going to do for you, Lucy, if you're going to do audio. Splendid. Aren't I? Yep. So one of my audio of year was an episode of This American Life called Five Women. Stop me if I've told you about this before. Have I told you about this one before? I always thought that was the title. <laughs> Stop me if I've told you before. It's a good name. That's a good name for a podcast, isn't it? Yeah. Isn't uh, it? Though? Yeah, yeah. That's a really good name. So uh, Five Women is starts with this psychologist, Vivian, being interviewed about her experiences of, sort of sexual harassment throughout her life. And then they start talking about her husband, who was... Um, kind of the editor of this progressive news site and she always knew he was a flirt and then these sexual harassment allegations start coming out against him and the this is a true story yeah sorry yeah true story and the reporter then interviews and follows vivian plus four of the women who brought out harassment allegations against don not just through their experiences with don and what happens next but also the reporter understands there's no sort of me too movement that is separate from the rest of everyone's lives it's not like there's one moment where it's like something happened every single harassment allegation or just general thing that women put up with is part of a big story it's a steady and, drip rather than a, yeah mm. so she puts everything in this context and it's subtle and it's nuanced and it doesn't it's not bashing like don is is treated in this very sort of human way it's the most intelligent passing of me too that I've encountered and where are we in American life because I feel like I've been hearing about it forever and I've heard some episodes are we on like does it do seasons are we, uh, are we well in the oh no we... it's just once a week before we're into like the 700th episode every week yeah sometimes they repeat them yeah is it consistently good mm, no there are some that stand out it's a lovely thing to listen to every week and there are some that stand out and that one was the and then do you want the rest of my Oh, well, yeah. Why mm. not? Why yeah. not? So we keep going. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to recommend one thing that I haven't actually seen. Nice. <laughs> nice. This but is it's definitely like. my you review it for me. But don't go and see it. There's a film called Roma coming out. <laughs> oh, yeah. Or just yeah, come out. It's in this we week. all know And it's in this week. Yeah. Lucy's actually read this week. article because it's in her, on her page. Everyone's going crazy about it. Is it Adam Mars Jones's? Yes, it is. Yeah. Everyone says it's wonderful. Everyone says it's wonderful. Is this Quaron? Yes, yes Alfonso Cuaron, and it's a semi-autobiographical take of his. How? Are you, what's basis for you making this one of your arts of the year? It's no, I just, I, I honestly, <laughs> it's so. <laughs> I love everything he's done, and yeah. it's so rarely that you encounter something that someone you love has done. Yeah, and just the praise. Yeah. around it, it could be wrong. Bold, it could be, it could like be it. wrong, but yeah. I don't. I don't think it is. Okay, well, I'll come back in the new year. <laughs> yeah. This is an event, though, for Netflix, isn't it? To be 
doing this, mm. putting it out yes. to cinemas and mm. being able and to make it a... on yeah, Netflix a as well. Yeah. And I think it's on Netflix probably by the time this comes out. But they've started doing that because it's the only way they can get Academy Award nominations mm. and yeah. they have to do the deal, don't they? Minim- oh, right. So it's minimal, they do minimal screenings yeah. in order to qualify for Academy Award oh, nominations and then they, they push it out on Netflix. That's what we should do when that. we uh, release our film. Tell me about that film. We can workshop it in a bit. Okay. I'm just saying that's okay. what we should do. After you um, filed out to the year workshop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My other film viewer is Tully, which I have actually seen. Well done. Yes. It's an excellent film. What is Tully about? It's it's a film. It's actually a film about post-nice depression, Stig. But oh, <laughs> you remember it from Rosa's excellent piece on it in the Times of um, True um, Supplement. Yes. Um, but what it is, is it's a witty... Good. Beautifully shot, yeah, you were really clever high film. Yeah, you were really high on this. One. About a really important issue that you don't see reflected back to you in your culture. You see it in your life. You do not see it on the screen. You don't. You, you don't encounter it. It's brilliant. So that was that was definitely one of my films of the year. So I could keep going. I do one. <laughs> I think yeah, we'll post some editorial constraints. Do one more. Jasmine Ward. That's a book. Yeah, aren't we doing arts? No. no. Well, I mean, yes. We've done books, books, of, the, we've done books, we've books done of the year. Books. You've got to have a system. It's the TLS, there's no books Chaos. allowed. Chaos. Right, stop. Kept, stop. Okay, who wants to, who wants to chime in? <laughs> i got the feeling, you've not paid an awful lot. Of, you haven't been well, have you? In fact, you've not been well. I only saw that bit that we need to bring the thing about food examples. Yeah. saw that like 10 minutes ago. Well, okay, <laughs> you pause for a second and think of your food examples. I have. I feel like Monica from Friends trying to do forced fun here. Do you know this is kind of... <laughs> It's like when she has Nobody a party was going to say it. Yeah, and everyone has to, everyone has to fill out their <laughs> top jobs or whatever. Thea, you look like you're... Give us an art of the year that you have seen and isn't art. I can do I can do <laughs> exhibitions. So I can do Dorothea Lang and Vanessa Winship. That was at the Barbican. Okay. Sort of documentary photography. So you end up with the founder, one of the founders, Dorothea Lang, and then Vanessa Winship, who, who is still working. And so, you know, going through both of those exhibitions, one is on the ground floor and Vanessa Winship's upstairs, you kind of move from... The the Dust Bowl photographs, Migrant Mother being oh, yeah. Lang's most famous. And then upstairs you've got Winship and, and she sort of w- works her way through the Rust Belt and the Balkans and she's looking at identity and memory. That was great to see them both together. And also to see loads of Dorothea Lang work that I'd never seen before. Because obviously everyone's familiar with the Dust Bowl stuff and Migrant Mother and all of those photographs, but I'd never seen her photographs of the American internment of the Japanese um, oh. after Pearl Harbor obviously and we had a piece on that by Jeremy Triglone didn't we the, the yes exactly who did the, who did the photographs for that someone did a book on the internment well oh I'll, I don't remember I'll, yeah. but the, the, the Lucy you didn't the read the paper don't you just look confused we did review that exhibition though, so if you'd like me to uh, who reviewed if that if you'd like me to reveal that I did read that piece <laughs> yeah. I can who reviewed that what the Dorothea Lang yeah that, uh, Judith Flanders did ah. it for us and she, she thought it was terrific. Yeah, and just yeah. so great to see it all together. And films, I'm going to give you Phantom Thread, which I was pleased was oh. actually, I saw in February this year, that was a UK release date. I was worried I was going to have to think of something else, but Phantom Thread. Adam Marjones did not like that? I, not much, oof, I, I had a lot to say about Adam Mars Jones's piece, but I said it to myself. Oh, say it to said Lucy. It quietly to myself. To <laughs> Lucy didn't do it. I disagreed with him. I think some of the points that he made were over Daniel Day-Lewis's character having an affected accent, and, and he, he thought that that was accidental, but I think it was kind of integral to his his character, as he's this, he's this um, very poised 
dressmaker. And it's just a beautiful film. It's Paul Thomas Anderson, whose films I always love. Ansel Adams did the the, uh, internment photographs. Ah, yes. That's what I was thinking of. Sorry. And so that was an amazing film. Johnny Greenwood did the soundtrack, which was just luscious. Of Radiohead fame. Yes. What else? What other? Uh, Oh, I liked Pavel Pavlikovsky's film, Cold War. Oh, uh, also a movie by Adam Jones. Yep. Mm-hmm. Also black and white like Roma. Yeah, and I admired it. Very, very strong aesthetic. It was very, very stylish. The, the opening kind of idea is that the, there are these people going through Poland in the 19... I think it's 1949 or early 1950s, and they're looking for authentic folk musicians and performers. And then you kind of have that playing out, and they want to found a school that preserves and... and forwards that kind of art and then it gets co-opted by Stalin. That's kind of in parallel to this couple who are completely two, a man and a woman. He's older, she's younger, they're completely different, she's religious, he's not, and how they're trying to figure out their own love story and it sort of plays with melodrama and all of these conventions. Mm. It's no Johnny English 3 by the sounds of it. <laughs> no, I mean, tell us <laughs> about that, Is that your film not of the year? No, I, I did have to watch it and it was really as bad as one might imagine it would be. (laughs) Michael, do you want to throw any more out? Oh, well, I'll only chip in two more things that that, that come to mind because they're a contradiction. I got to see Mark Rylance as Iago this year at Shakespeare's Globe and it was was, was terrific. It was directed by Claire Van Campen with Andre Holland as Othello, which I got to... Did an excellent review for the Times of Truth. Got to review, but (laughs) then as well as... I'm just picking up my own pages. Your own pages are fantastic. They've taken a lot of flack and they're really good pages. (laughs) And I have a favourite. Thank you, Michael. (laughs) Many criticise the arts pages, but not you. Not me. Not to my face. Loyal to the last, at least least for now. But the thing that I would contrast with that is that I got to see the episode of Upstart Crow, where they take the piss out of Mark Rylance. Yes. It's incredibly stagey, ridiculous acting, where the actor, Wolf Hall, comes on and is terribly serious with long pauses. <laughs> and so I've got to have Rylance, the real Rylance, who's fantastic, and I had everybody in the you know, palm of his hand, great, great performance. And I really appreciate them taking the mick out of him. They've got to take the mick out of him nice. because he doesn't believe Shakespeare wrote the plays of Shakespeare. That's the ridiculous thing about him and always has Who been. Who does he think wrote them? Oh, he, is, 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 who's he? Who's he? Is, is I, he a... Oh, off the top of my head, I can't remember. I think he hangs around a kind of Devere-ish view, but he's more interested in the in the agnostic, sceptical kind of line. The Devere-ish view, which I've, I only recently realised, is the view that... And De Vere died in 1605. That's that right? right, yes. So and so the theory, to sell. people who believe Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare because he was too common, basically, is it must have been an aristocrat. Oh, it's De Vere. De Vere died in 1605, and therefore all the plays that were produced between 1606 and 1613, which is quite a, quite a considerable... There's quite a sizable. few good plays there, which uh, they've been hiding. He just kept in a cupboard. Oh, and, and someone right. And someone found... I think Occam's Razor would suggest that's not that likely, isn't it? It does seem unlikely, but not to people like Mark Rylance. I mean, who knows, maybe they're on to something, which is another reason why he had the piss taken out of him in Upstart Crow, so I rather enjoyed that. <laughs> is Upstart, what do you think of Upstart Crow? I love it. It's Ben Elton wrote a sitcom about Shakespeare's life. Yes. And it's, you like it? I do like it, so it's up to the end of the third season. There will be a Christmas special of that, so you can have the tradition of Are gathering around. Are you on commission? <laughs> Absolutely, I'm selling all of this. Uh, I, I, there's some stuff I really hate, but they're not paying me enough to say. And they're, At least it's, it's interesting, because it. they've done... I mean, obviously, Ben Elton's known for working on Blackadder, and they've got up to a point now where one of Shakespeare's he can do children no, has died. He can do um, no wrong. So it's a complete farce, you know, for most of it. It's the last episode, and then it takes a little serious turn. Mm. Which, of course, he did in Blackadder. Oh, she didn't back out, exactly. Ha- it's Hamlet. It's Hamlet. 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 Yeah. yeah I suppose it seems fitting, because don't they always say about if Shakespeare were alive, he would have been writing sitcoms, so... 
Yeah, I yeah, never quite I, buy that. I don't think. Yeah, it's too convenient, isn't it? We would be writing for EastEnders, or he'd be struggling. He's or struggling he'd be artists. Tarantino. People just oh, do it. Oh, it's EastEnders. My theory of Shakespeare. The reason why I think Shakespeare is so profoundly magnificent is he combi- no one in history combines being a hack having to churn stuff out and being a genius you're normally Mozart. one Mozart and that's a good example of another one then but, but there's not mind, many there's not many who actually have to produce and hack it out and therefore the channel for your genius is so large it just overflows it just it's constant pouring out and most people if you're a genius once you do something of genius you then sit somewhere rarefied and mm. gradually... And nobody mm. questions you yeah, ever and you again. Left and it. Whereas and, Shakespeare yeah. basically yeah. every day had to get up and for 20 years put out another play. And therefore you get those two tremendous flowerings, the, the Hamlet, the, what was it, the 1599 one and then the mm-hmm. 1606 one, which is when David had de- dead, mm-hmm. where you just get this, a run of... Was it Julius Caesar Hamlet... As you like it, yeah. Twelfth Night, Twelfth night in, in, there, yeah. in a row, which is just, when you think about it, no one has ever done anything as good as that ever in all of art, arguably. You could cut it, I mean, if he died in the plague in the 1590s, you'd still have something absolutely remarkable. You wouldn't have, you know, Lear and a lot of other things, but you'd have some pretty remarkable things that move the whole idea of drama on stage forward and characterisation forward. The, what Upstart Crow does, I suppose, is take all of this material and make the silliest possible response out of it. David Mitchell plays Shakespeare as a man who's constantly stealing ideas, books that are left on the privy. There's the woman in the house who isn't allowed to act, of course, completely frustrated, completely desperate to go on stage, and she never can. Marlowe's just hanging around being a bit of a lad. Mm. It's, it's absolutely ludicrous, <laughs> and I, I quite like that. It's quite silly. I've given up on all the other responses, which are all too grand and, and just silly. Yeah. Anyone else for any more? I've got a couple. Lucy, why don't you, as arts doyen? Doyen? Um... How would you, Thea, how would you say, doyen, doyen? Doyen, I would say doyen. Doyen, yeah. I think I got it wrong the first time. Yeah. Well, not unusually for me. Go on. I've got a couple of things. One of them is an artist of the year. I mean, I'm not really supposed to do this, but I was just thinking about it. You do um, anything you like. I R- Ros, like... Ros has already shattered the rules of engagement by doing stuff of uh, books Ros. and stuff she hasn't seen. Tore down the rules. <laughs> yeah. I would just like to say, and this is not in any way original, I would say Simon Russell Beale for Artist of the Year because I've seen him in Death of Stalin. I saw him on a, in the, being year. Mr. Sedley in Vanity Fair. I saw him for about 10 minutes and it was just absolutely brilliant what he did and I saw him on stage. Everyone hated Lehman Vanity Trilogy. Fair, didn't they? But I, I really did just turn it on. I saw a bit of it and didn't much like it and then I turned it on one time and he was on. So you watch because he was on and he did a bit where he's, he's ruined Mr. Sedley by the collapse of the sort of stock market, isn't he? Yeah. And he just... And, and, and Russell Beale kind of crumpled not not at all in a stagey way he just kind of collapses and falls apart and you thought oh my god you know what's going on and he was just wonderful and i saw him in, in the lehman trilogy which is long which is very very long and you enjoyed it i mean they were all wondrous but he was really wondrous and he really did have everyone you know that doesn't happen very often it's like michael saying that mark rylands can do it as well sometimes there's one person and they're not it's not that they're upstaging everybody no. else but that they're just doing it out of their skin and the whole theater will watch them whatever they're doing it doesn't i've seen it about two or three times yeah. i'd say mark rylands was one of them the other one was marcello magni from complicite who was just amazing yeah. and i think simon russell beale did that as well if he'd said to the whole audience 
I don't know, you know, look in your pockets and give me a tenner. I mean, everybody would have done it. You'd have done whatever he asked. I don't have a tenner. No, <laughs> Michael, look into your pockets. Does he take card? <laughs> yeah. That's a power that could be abused when you think about it. So he would, that would be the person. Because I, I just, I've seen him in different, sort of doing yeah, different things. Good. And he was yeah. amazing. And in terms of a live thing. Yes, not a book. Not a book. It's not a book. And I, and I was there. Yeah. <laughs> I went to a prom. Ooh. I know, music. I went to um, Tarangalila by Messiaen. And I went, actually, I went with Adrian of the TLS. I, I go to all of my arts events <laughs> with a member of the TLS. <laughs> yeah, so and this time it was Adrian. Tarangalila. It's Sanskrit. It's Sanskrit, obviously. Is everyone else, when, when Lucy said that, did everyone sort of go, oh, Tarangalila? I was just thinking it's such a lovely sounding it title. Is, it's not a well known thing. No, so no, none of us here had heard of that. Oh, no. No. Michael has. No. Michael knows. Oh, yeah. Michael probably wished it. Oh, it's so Oh, Michael, you're. Oh, Go on, ask me about the quartet at the end of time. <laughs> yeah. about that. That's good, isn't it? Anyway, it was on. Who's it by again? With, it's by Messiaen. Messiaen. Um, who was obsessed by three know. things. I was reading about him because he taught Pierre Boulez. He taught everybody. He was very much into church. He was obsessed by three things, which was basically the church. He was very, very, very believy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know why I said that? Because I was going to say, this is going to sound <laughs> awful, I was going to say croyant because that's what he said. Oh, I know, for I God's know. Oh, and was a pitch of expertise sorry. there, wasn't there? There were three things that we know oh, about this person. I prefer translating from croyant. And then he's famous for trying to transcribe bird song. Oh, so lovely. he tried to transcribe it and reproduce it in music, which arguably, some people said it drove him bananas. What do you think, Michael? I mean, I'd like to think so. I mean, it's very, very difficult to do, can yeah, we say. And he was just doing it by, in a field. He didn't have, like, equipment and stuff. He'd be in a field uh, listening in a hedge with his pencil. That, I mean, that, that thrush is that singing in C type. Yeah, but, and then he would write down what the thrush was, yeah, was yeah, singing. Yeah. And then also the organ was his other obsession. And there's a brilliant... I was just reading about a thing about Boulez snorting about him because he was taught by Messiaen and Boulez was just saying all of those things were awful and that he thought that the work that he did around the time of Turangalila was brothel music and vomit. <laughs> and you go, no, hang on, Boulez, tell us what you really think. And, <laughs> and actually, when it came out, Turangalila, it's a ridiculous large sort of symphony in yes. about and 10 or 12... Why it's very rarely done, because it needs yeah. an organ, doesn't it? It needs a huge does. orchestra, 8 to 11 percussionists. <laughs> there was loads of keyboard instruments, not all of which I could identify. There's a You need a pianist of extraordinary... Technique Amazing. and virtuosity, and you need an Ond Martineau, which, well, it sounds like a theremin, which is the thing that you hear in science fiction, oh. like that. Yeah. So an Ond Martineau is, a, is like a theremin. It was made at the same time. And it's this bonkers, bonkers piece, which is supposed to be about love and the garden of love and Sanskrit ideas about something. Which a bit believy for my taste. <laughs> well, it's not very believy actually. No. It's just it's mad. There isn't any of that no, in it. Not believy enough for my taste. It's and it's got these amazing kind of wonderful swoony tunes with the Ond Martino going woo and the strings all over the place and it's very chromatic and then sometimes just a load of percussion will kind of barrel its way through the middle of it. Give us the title one more time for people taking notes. Tarangalila. Tarangalila. Yeah, a lot of people think it's awful. I think it's wonderful. I love it. <laughs> Up there with Vaughan Williams five, Sibelius two. Stop yeah. it! So I think it was kind of charming. It was charming about five right. minutes ago. We we've over, we've overdone it. A bit right. too believing. Yeah, well done, Lucy. Yeah, too believing. Well done, Lucy. Well, I was going to say something, but I think we've probably run out of time. I would say I no, saw. No, go on. Stick till it's yours. Lee Miller 
at the Hepworth Wakefield, I went to see. What, her photos? Yeah, her photos are part oh. of British Surrealism, which I didn't really like the British Surrealism stuff, but the Lee Miller photos, I didn't really... The famous picture of her in Hitler's bath mm. is just brilliant. In fact, yeah. she, was Vogue's, she was Vogue's war correspondent yeah. and was sent into... I mean, she, and she was there for two years and was photographing concentration camps. It was yeah. amazing stuff. And then she gets to Hitler's apartment and she takes pictures of it and then there's a bath and she just gets in it. And, and she walks in with her boots but, and the boots covered are, in Auschwitz and the, mud. Yeah, and the boots are left next mm. to the bath and she gets in. And it, it, when you see that picture, it's just mm. this wonderful thing. I just And I hadn't really he- I'd heard of her, but didn't quite know where she fit, fitted into the... British surrealism isn't very good, it seems to me. You should go to her house in Sussex. Oh, uh, where she was Farley's with, with Roland Penrose. Roland Penrose. It's amazing. Yeah. It's such a wonderful and artist's and, house and, to visit. And that's where she used to have hang out with all these surrealists. Picasso and Henry Moore and, yeah. used to go there and they used to sort of mess around together. It's worth it. Yeah, yeah it's really good. You can see her kitchen where she cooked the most amazing meals and there's a there's a, t- a tile that Picasso did that's just sort of sitting above the Arga. I've got one of them. Yeah. <laughs> Always comes back to food. In fact, that's, that is a segue. <laughs> there you are. Thea. Oh, no, but you've not finished your... You've not finished no, your... I've had enough. Oh. I've had enough. <laughs> you, don't hear, you don't hear me rambling on about things that I've liked. I want to go back to Johnny Ingram. Johnny Ingram's three. Johnny Ingram's three. Yeah, it's terrible, okay. as you might imagine. I mean, as bad as you think it is. You know, Rowan Atkinson, you know, as we're talking about Ben Elson, who, because he did Blackadder, can do no wrong as far mm-hmm. as I'm concerned. Brilliant man. Loved his novels when I was a kid. Loved Blackadder. But Rowan Atkinson... You know, I love Blackadder more than anyone, and yet I think he's done such bad work since then. That I think <laughs> I'm, I'm actually not prepared to forgive him for it, even with Blackadder. That Mr. Seems Bean. Fair enough. Who likes Mr. Bean apart from Almost L everyone in the, in the world. In France, it's a big oh, deal, isn't yeah, it? Everyone except for you likes Mr. Bean. You I don't Mr. like Bean. Mr. Bean. Does anyone in this don't room like him? Mr. Bean? <laughs> no. well, I don't, you love I don't Bean. hate I don't Mr. Bean. Know. No, of course doesn't. Do you like Mr. Bean, Michael? I virtually am Mr. Bean. <laughs> Can I say that's not true? No, he's hairier than Mr. Bean. Oh, yes. Oh, no, but he's a hairy. Very. Yeah. <laughs> let's, in a minute, let's talk about some food. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
I am pleased to say that we do have a food and drink issue or spread of pieces in this week's paper. Yes. I'm pleased to get to it now because you shall see before you hear. Or um, people listening will not well, see before. No, I'm about to describe what you guys can see, but they cannot. Go on. Nor can they smell it, sadly. I uh, can't smell it. Some Italian cake. You brought some Marese. Italian cake? What is it called? Um, it's called Dolce Varese, and it's an example of how inventive and entrepreneurial Italians can be because it was only invented in the 1930s when this patissia in Varese realised that so many other places in Italy have their own traditional cake and Varese does not. Oh. So, so Dolce Varese was born and it's, it's kind of a bit like Madeira cake, I think, Should except, that, except that it has a mix of corn flour and normal flour, so it's better for you than normal cake, basically. Did you make this? No, I didn't. I bought it. So what is it? Is it a pistachio cake? <laughs> well, it, the pistachio, is a, as I was saying to Lucy earlier, is, a, is an adult spin on it. Normally it's plain with just some icing sugar. But I saw this pistachio version and I thought, I'm an adult now, so it's I can nice. pistachio. <laughs> it's nice, but it's not... No, it's very simple. The, the whole point is the, the whole point is is that it's a day cake. So you have it for breakfast. Okay, cake. You know, it's not it's not an occasion cake. thing. It's not an occasion. It's an thing. adult cake, apparently. Oh, yeah. it's, adult. <laughs> it's a breakfast cake. It's a breakfast cake. I think breakfast cakes are much underrated. Breakfast things. cakes oh are wonderful. Oh my gosh, it's delicious. What do you think, Michael? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's really good. Mm-hmm. It's quite dry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> is it meant to be like that? We should have brought champagne in to wash it down. Yeah. It's a yes, day cake. You have champagne. champagne. <laughs> what do you think, Lisa? Don't you have champagne every I day? I like it. You like it, mm-hmm. Michael? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't do a thumbs up on a podcast, Michael. Michael that just did just the thumbs, thumbs up. Thumbs up. Thumbs up. <laughs> yeah. um, anyway, there is a point to this. Uh, go on. The point to this is, I mean, apart from just having cake, yeah. who needs a point? That the selection of pieces that we have in this food and drink spread are, they're sort of a quiet... Quiet tribute to Britain and Europe. <laughs> so we have we have a piece. Um, we have Italian cake here. We have Ian Sansom writing a deconstruction, giving us a deconstruction of the British Christmas dinner, which is as fun as it sounds. And then we have Tim Crane trotting us through wine snobbery. His tale begins in May 1976, and it's this. It's known as the Judgment of Paris, and it was this this blind tasting when Californian wines were pitted against French wines, and the Californian wines wiped the floor with the oh. with the French wines. And so then he kind of uses that to look at wine snobbery more broadly in wine. I have to say, um, I always buy because my wife loves red wine. I always buy New World wine, red wine, because it's always for them. You get much better value for the money. So if you buy like a fifteen quid. Australian wine it's much better than if you buy a 15 quid French wine because French prices are still inflated so a 15 quid Australian wine tastes better than a 15 quid French wine because France is it and so if you ever want to buy somebody like this is my experience and I, I could be dubbed a total philistine but it's a good way of getting better value for your for your buck in my I mean we really we should call Tim Tim Crane get yeah. him on the line so he'll tell me I'm wrong. I'll, I'll email him afterwards. <laughs> I thought, I'll email him afterwards, and if I'm wrong, I'll admit it at a later yeah. podcast. I'll just read out his censure. Okay, but leave anyway. Leave the new world to one side because we're still in Europe. Oh, yet. sorry, I forgot this was a <laughs> crypto pro EU moment. <laughs> <laughs> Can't so we just we get have, on with leaving we, here? <laughs> no, we can get on with eating. So we okay. have Paul Levy, ah, uh, yeah. and he he's looking at this book that has just been translated from the original French which came out, I think, last year. And it's a book by François-Régis Gaudry and his friends, he says, and friends. And it's called Let's Eat France! Exclamation mark. And he kind of trots through the whole of the country and he has these poster-sized guides. And they're guides to, I mean, they're guides to the varieties of vanilla, pasta, chickpeas, cherries, It's like croissants, an impossibly large subject, edible isn't seaweeds, it? garlic, sausages, omelettes, testicles, all sorts. I mean... 
anyway, they're poster size guides, so you can you can you can peruse them at your will. He also has a nice little foray into food food slang, based around the onion, which you you commented on. Stick. I said, oh, because it's a, there's a phrase. Oh, yeah. I, Lucy, you know how I'm interested I am in in French idiom. You're very interested. in What's French the one idiom? I really liked about pavements? Can you remember that? Pavements. Paving slabs. I it was about, um, oh, la dalle, j'ai la dalle. What is the Like when you say la dalle the whole time. I had a friend who just used to say... What does it mean? Well, if, if you say, have you got any... Like if I said, have you got any food? And you said, que dalle. It would mean I haven't got anything. I've, I've only got paving stones. <laughs> and also he would say, j'ai la dalle, which, like, I've, I've got the paving stone. I've got, I don't know why he said this. He might be the only person in the world who did. But it meant, I'm really hungry. I love a I love a foreign idiom. Like there's a Spanish. This is completely different. But there's a Spanish phrase which, when someone brags a lot, in Spanish you say he doesn't need a grandmother. Oh, that's, oh, nice. that's so nice. Uh, because they they puff themselves up, and that's I so I, nice. I love it because you would never you could never invent that idiom. It can mm. just arise mm. naturally. And the the onion one is get dressed. Oh, the onion one. Well, there's all sorts really. There's au petit oignon, which means to be cajoled or pampered. Then there's, oh, the one that you liked, être vêtu comme un oignon, which is to wear several layers of clothing. Oh, it's like the onion yeah. approach. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, get dressed yeah, like an onion. onion. There's also occupe-toi de tes oignons, which is basically mm. mind your own business. This doesn't mind your own onion. onions. Maybe. Yeah, mind your own onions. <laughs> is that a sort of <laughs> testicle <laughs> reference, do you think? Not necessarily. No, it's, no, it's just yeah. look after your onions <laughs> and I'll look after mine. I've got, <laughs> well, got a testicle vibe. Blimey. I don't know. It's French, isn't it? <laughs> must be testicles involved. There must be somewhere. And from there, we jump to Marin Meinhardt, our, our German editor, who's written a beautiful piece on German food in which she kind of she takes two books that have come out at the same time and take incredibly different approaches to German food one of them harks back to this kind of imagined past where everything is stodge and pork and that's lovely and it's all bound by paintings brought together by paintings by Caspar David Friedrich who Maren points out you know he he's he's best known for a period the romantic period which was synonymous with premature death rather than hearty eating oh those are two connected and then she contrasts that with a book by Anya Donk, who takes a fresh and thoughtful look at German food. See, when less we talk about, because I think based, less sugary. Less but Italian food, everyone praises Italian food. French food, everyone praises French food. German food. Well, it's not pop- known, is it? For you yeah. think currywurst? I thought I think schnitzel. Mm. Any any advances on that? Mm-hmm. Gingerbread. Oh, maybe that's all right. But you think Christmassy, don't you? Yeah, you, you think, think Christmassy. Is beer, beer, isn't it? Isn't it beer you're meant to think about? Yeah, you do. Beer, yeah, he's shouting. Not, 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 yeah. not a food. Not a food. <laughs> not a food. <laughs> 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 liquid, liquid lunch. However, surely. Who I wanted to be. I had all my calories from <laughs> <laughs> And the third piece in that triptych is a wonderful piece by Nikki Segnet, who B. Wilson was on the show talking about. She Nikki was. Nikki Segnet's book not that long ago and enthusing about it. And Nikki Segnet has written a review of Daunt have just reissued Consider the Oyster, which is one of MFK Fisher's most famous books. It sounds um, amazing, this book. And Nikki Segnet opens with this wonderful anecdote, this beautiful anecdote, which I'm going to quote for you in full. The Oyster Lady at our wedding reception might have been an unusually dedicated reenactor from a Dickens festival. Plastered on arrival, she nabbed a bottle of champagne and drank with Mrs Gamp-like determination <laughs> through the speeches and first dance. Her oysters came seasoned with blood and shell fragments. A friend asked if he could have one without the crunchy bits. No, she barked, and went back to mutilating her thumb with a shocking knife. Oh. It was a talking point, at least. But oysters are like that. Some produce pearls, others stories. Uh, and so that's her entrance into this collection of essays by MFK Fisher, you which rem- you're a fan of, Lucy. Mm, uh, I love MFK Do you remember Fisher. in Dwight Garner's commonplace book, Grace Jones's Rider had 24 oh, yeah. oysters, and the quote on it was... Grace shucks her own oysters. Oh, yes, yes. So what a did, dude. Yeah. I introduced my daughter to oysters for the first <gasps> time uh, two weeks ago, and she loved it. 
brilliant because yeah. she didn't think she well, didn't have any preconceptions. No, I just yeah. think, I don't. I, so I, I had like the you know the shallot and vinegar thing and then the Tabasco. So the usual Sunday around your house or twenty four uh, <laughs> fin de Claire. This is a day oyster. It's <laughs> <laughs> a day oyster. So, so we had it with this the day champagne. Yeah. I don't want to. I, don't, later I, don't want, on. I didn't want to introduce it to a night oyster. No, <laughs> just too young. Um, no, I got well. We were at a place that had it and. and she was kind of interested. I thought, we'll have it. And then, mm. uh, and she, she liked it. And my kids quite like seafood. They like seafood more than I do, but they, she sort of went for it. And they're right, because now I, she won't be frightened of them. No, there's nothing really to be frightened of. Do people still, except if you have a bad one, it You're can put you off for life. But I think, I think plenty people, people talk about the ritual, aren't they? They don't know how to do it, and they think yeah. it's alive and it's gross. But I think if you have a bad one, you're more disposed to have another bad one, in, or you're more disposed to have a reaction. Yeah, there's is a, that just self-fulfilling oh, prophecies? Really? <laughs> no, I think there's, there is a thing that once you have a bad reaction to an oyster, you're the, the, the chance of you having another bad reaction to Oh, an oyster, like wasps and bee stings. It increases. Mm. And so is that true? It might, so oh, I don't not, know. I've never heard that. I've had it put to me, but I mean, we could have to ask Nikki Segnew. Mm. You have to do that via email. <laughs> so I'll we'll report back on my new world theory of wine value. <laughs> and can, can you please report back on, is there a danger in oysters? You're pitching a notes and queries yes. series. Yeah. 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 Tune in later to find out. <laughs> it's basically like just, any answers. Yeah, we are. <laughs> it's basically just like fact checking ourselves, but with a delay. But we haven't yeah. done it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> It's a bit like not preparing properly, Roz, it's for like, this type of podcast. It's, um, like, it's like post-publication fact-checking. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's a dangerous game. Yeah, do it beforehand. <laughs> any more for any more there, Thea? Because we also have... We also have Catherine Morris yeah, on the pub. Cows. The casual profundity oh, of a proper British pub. Brilliant. Why do we prize them? Why should we mourn their loss? She's I reviewing don't a book. Pubs at all. I don't really like pubs. I spent oh. quite a lot of time with Catherine Morris in pubs. Yeah, you, 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 me too. You, 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 got, you guys, you, yeah. I think TLS people generally, they're quite pub going people. We had I don't know why you're looking pub. so blank, Michael. Yeah. yeah, you are looking as though butter wouldn't melt in your mouth, yeah. Michael, which a is pub? absolutely yeah. misleading. I what is TLS, this word? TLS journalists, you know, it's quite rare for journalists these days or any employees to go off and have a pint at lunchtime, but that still happens, doesn't it, at the TLS? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're too busy working. I think I Michael does not do the but there was a pub in our old offices, a wonderful pub called the Calthorpe, which Catherine particularly loved. This makes Catherine seem. You know, let's no, be no, no, absolutely I mean, she, clear. I mean, we were there with her. She didn't go on her own. One of the most diligent people I've ever met in any walk of life. <laughs> yeah. Works incredibly hard. I mean, I know, there's a pub. Well, Cas, Cas, like, Cas was there all the time. No, she just. She just loved it for what it was. We all loved as we, did, as we all did. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing about that area is it was a journalist's part of town, wasn't it? And the pubs mm. had different assigned tribes of journalists. Yes. There was the Politico's pub, there was the Cartoonist pub where they'd mm. sit quietly and mutter about people. And I don't this, know what particular, ours was. this particular pub was one. across the road from the Welsh <gasps> from the Welsh Society. Welsh Men's Quiet. The Welsh Men's yeah. Quiet. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so Ros and I were yeah. there once and, and this whole group of Welshmen came in and just... Just erupted Sound. into well, the most. Found out it was the barmaid's birthday because we, we yeah. no, we didn't realise they were all together and they were all part of the Welsh National Choir. We just thought the pub was full, and then one of them found out it was the barmaid's birthday, and he said, "All together, lads!" And the Welsh National Choir sang "Happy Birthday to You" in a very small. It was pub. divine, and it was like <laughs> absolutely transformational. It was good. Yeah. The castle Showing was magic. Off. Maybe a bit of showing off, yeah. but they had something in to close show Close to tight harmony, where they singing happy birthday. It was a bit like that symphony, I think. <laughs> it was not. The thing I remember about the Calthorpe is that they had quite a lot of mice and stuff, and you think, all oh, right, that's that's fine, it's old school. And then they had a, it was refurbished. Remember when it was refurbished, and they had new carpets and everything, but they kept the mice. Did it have a meat raffle? Which I thought was good. 
It didn't have a it meat wrap. It had chips, chips though. Yeah. had really nice. We had chips, chips all the time. Yeah, chips, no. yeah. Meat raffle, I think, is a sign of it. I don't really know what meat raffle is. You've never been in a pub with... You're northern. Yeah. How have you not... Surely it's part of your birthright meat. to know about meat raffle. luxury. No, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so what they about. do is, the idea was in pubs, that they, they bring out a platter of raw meat and you can win it. Is this, is this something a, you've jumped on? No, it's not. But yeah, can you? Yeah, can, no, it was a thing. The, the pub I'm thinking of in Leeds, which was near the, the meat market, was I think the meat raffle was mostly run by people who had stolen the meat from the market, though. So it was a whole other level of grime. Was it like prime cuts of meat or not so much? Oh, uh, I mean, not not the ones I'm no. thinking of. Do you want to email someone? <laughs> after the, you, yeah. yeah. Everyone's <laughs> going to have a job. Yeah. A Leeds butcher. Can you email anyone with butchery knowledge and find out if that's true or Theo and I have. have Sort of separately. It's just the pubs that we no, go no, to. Yeah, yeah. If you say so. Maybe that's why you don't like pubs, Dave. Yeah, it is. I, 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 yeah. I don't like Just go to a I pub without like a meat raffle. It said, it said, if you have a bad reaction to the meat raffle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, I'm not that. sure that's true. Someone needs to check that as well. Now, before we go, we were going to. Ella Baron, Lucy. Yes. Our lovely cartoonist. Yes. Very good cartoonist. And she did, about a few weeks ago, she did Literary Love Island which was a homage to Love Island, a terrible TV show, and using literary examples of people getting together. Mm. And for Christmas, she's done Literary Bake Off. It's a brilliant idea, which is examples of literary food. It is, and it's a, it's a brilliant idea. And it's got, that I can remember, which again, we should have researched slightly more carefully before having this conversation, Lucy, but we're going to proceed anyway. Miss Havisham's Wedding Cake. Yep. Proust's Madeleines. Yes. Rebecca's Crumpets. Which sounds like a euphemism, it does, but isn't. But crumpets or muffins, crumpets, Crum- let's crumpets, say crumpets. Muffins, no better. Muffin, no, it's, it's all it's bad. It's got isn't it? something Dickensian, hasn't it? Miss Havisham. Oh yeah, thanks. Oh no, else? you're thinking of Ian Sansom's piece, maybe, which has the oh, that's the, the, got, the yes. scene of the food okay. thrown. Yes, it does. This is a good link because I was thinking one of my favourite things in all of in reading books is when they describe food and we talked to Laura Freeman the writer about this because she wrote a book about how food helped her with anorexia and it was, gave her an appetite back and she's going to write a piece food for us about, about post second world war rationing led to writers being hungry or hunger being in the air and so it's full of novels with hunger and sort of enjoying food because they're kind of having to get it only in their imagination so I thought we could talk about any times in books not arts. <laughs> books we've read. Books we've actually read. Though <laughs> so not necessarily foods that we have eaten. No. Favourite literary meals or drinks? I've got one. Go on. I've had this for a long time. I didn't have to think for even a second. I mean, there are others I could work up. Yeah, but you but haven't. Done. No, but I've, no, but I've, no, but, you know, you I've got the quote and everything. But you haven't worked up the others. I have worked up the others. No, fine. If you would like me to talk about them. But the one that I, the, the one that I really remember that always stuck with me is... The pie in Danny, the champion of the world. Yeah. So I think it's when, do you know, do you remember when he drives the car? He has to drive the car on his own. He's 10 or 11 or something, is he? And he has to drive mm. the car and go and try and get his dad out of the trap mm. because his dad has fallen into the poacher's mm. trap and he's broken his leg, I think. And Danny has to get him out and he has to drive the car there on his own and come back. And then I think his dad falls asleep or something. And the, the neighbour or the local doctor brings him round a pie and then he tells you about the pie and it's the most amazing thing. And I realise now that I'm fulfilling my northern stereotype Although, because it is about a pie. Yeah, but you've got some credit because you didn't know about meat, meat raffles. So. Okay, yeah, no, so I'm very, very posh. I've got yeah. the thing here Go if on. you want. Do you want me to read about, How long about is it? the pie? It was quite, it's quite long. Are you, are you worried you'll be bored? No, no. 
Okay. He says, so he got, he's from the doctor, and he says, I saw before me the most enormous and beautiful pie in the world. It was covered all over, top, sides and bottom, with rich golden pastry. I took a knife from beside the sink and cut out a wedge. I started to eat it in my fingers, standing up. It was a cold meat pie. The meat was pink and tender with no fat or gristle in it and there were hard-boiled eggs buried like treasures in several different places. The taste was absolutely fabulous. When I had finished the first slide, I cut another and ate that too. God bless Dr Spencer, I thought. Magnificent. And actually, if you think about Roald Dahl, but I think the chocolate in... The first time Charlie Bucket eats yeah. the chocolate, yeah. the golden, yeah. creamy, yeah. he's so hungry and then he eats yeah. the chocolate and wolves it down. Boggis... In Bun- Boggis Bunsen being fantastic, Mr. Fox, is that him? Where he has the donuts filled with goose fat. Oh, yes, the but that's gross. But yeah. Um, bird pie. Yeah, oh, stuff in the, their beard. Stuff in the, stuff the, in the beard. Yeah. Yeah. So there's obviously something around him, and he was a and product Matilda of. And Matilda and the cake. The yeah. boy who has to eat all the cake. Mm. Oh, the fat boy who makes yeah. all the Bruce, chocolate cake. Bogtrotter. Bruce. Yeah. So that, I mean, he's in this period, this. Yeah, he is. This, yeah. is. this is that period, mm. isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, but this is a nice one. Yeah. It's the eggs that do it for me. Yeah, like treasures. <laughs> What's like better treasures. than yeah. an egg in a pie? Uh, we've got to be quick, so everyone has a quick one if they want to. Ros, you don't have to because you, you weren't aware I that it was I've thought of there. one. Go on. It's a Believe You book. <laughs> <laughs> like uh, I, I, don't know, I don't know why I thought this one, but it is a good one. The Heart of the Matter by Graham Greene yep. starts with a character waiting for a gin-based drink. He's on a balcony, he's waiting for a gin-based drink. And it's a brilliant way to start a book. Because when you're waiting for a drink, you take in your surroundings and you fill the person that you're with, you fill them in on what's what's happened. Yeah. And this, between the moment that we realise he's ordered a drink and he's waiting and the moment he gets a drink, everything is set. It's brilliant. And then he, and then he gets a drink and he, and he tastes, tastes the it. Drink, yeah. And it, it's hot. The, the, the weather's hot. The drink's cold. And it's just really spot on I was thinking of <laughs> thinking of drink in the sun also rises Hemingway they go fishing this is before the fiesta start it's full of drink this, mm. this novel if anyone's ever read sun also rises they drink so much it's almost unbelievable but mm. they go fishing at one point it's a very hot day they have bottles of wine they've brought with them and as they go fishing they go they find a spring a pipe and they take the bottle of wine drive the cork down and put the wine down into the spring and then they retrieve it and it numbs their arm as they put their arm and then when they get the the wine and drink it it's ice cold and it tastes faintly of rust and uh, i've always imagined what that would would be like it's a good it's a good drink based Mm. a drink based one i think that's a fantastic one i like that i'll I'll tell you what there's there's an eccentric one which therefore not everyone's going to agree with this is iris murdoch in a novel the sea the sea she's Mm. a very eccentric um protagonist in this the theater director who retires goes somewhere remote and he starts thinking about this sort of first love and in the middle of it all there's a weirdly comic part where she starts it's quite typical of her i really want to do a book called the iris murdoch cookbook because she's so eccentric (laughs) about food but this see what you think of this so he's always got opinions about food um this this uh, character i ate three oranges at 11 o'clock this morning oranges should be eaten in solitude and as a treat when one is feeling hungry they're too messy and overwhelming to form part of an ordinary meal i should say here that i am not a breakfast eater though I respect those who are. And he goes on in that style, and then he brings you up to lunchtime. The orange feast did not dim my appetite for lunch, which consisted of fish cakes with hot Indian pickle and a salad of grated carrots, radishes, watercress and bean shoots. I went through a period of grated carrot with everything, but recovered. (laughs) Uh, And then he has a long disquisition about ice cream. It's completely mad, and then he just goes back to talking about his first love. Brilliant. But he's going to tell you what we had for lunch You can recover from a great I I would be better now. I think fish cake with hot Indian pickle. 
Sounds lovely. Sounds yeah. Nice. Bit of grated carrot to, to cool it down. It mm. sounds to me like she herself made up a lot of meals that just just whatever was in the cupboard mm. and they get into the books as the well. So it's quite fun looking for yeah. food in yeah. the books novels. Go on, yeah. Theo, we should finish with you because you are the food Okay, well, queen. I'll, be, I'll be quick then because, well, Virginia Woolf, the obvious one, there's to the lighthouse where she's got the buffon d'aube, which is just becomes this vehicle for all sorts of anxieties about life and death and social anxieties as well because, of course, Mrs. Ramsay isn't the one who's going to cook this magisterial meal. Martha's going to do it. And so uh, you get two pages of description. The exquisite scent of olives and oil and juice rose from the great brown dish as Mart, with a little flourish, took the cover off, and then she goes on and on and on for, yeah, two pages. Then there's a room of one's own where we meet the souls, which are so served to the Oxbridge men, uh, which are sunk in a, a deep dish over which the college cookers spread a counterpane of the whitest cream, save that it was branded here and there with brown spots like the spots on the flanks of a doe, and that's contrasted with the kind of watery soup that the women the women have to eat. Quite right. Um, so, you know, that's just a way of kind of carrying her whole argument. And yeah. then you've got James Salter, who just wrote beautifully about food. Well, if you think of Light Years, that book yeah. there, I think that begins with about 20 pages describing the meal being put together by the, the central couple in that novel. And everything is just so, just perfect. And it's building and it's building, but of course it's all just performance. So food is performance. The meal time is as a kind of these coded messages and you, you slowly become aware that the relationship's afraid and it's all a ruse or a, a show. Um, last one, the otherwise... Last one, R.C. Sharif, Journey's End, because it's not something that people really think about in terms of the food. No. And yet food is sort of centre stage there. It kind of borrowed from the English Renaissance tradition of having a, a table as a prop. So think Macbeth and, and, and Banquo's the, the Feast. Yeah. And and the table is literally dressed as though it were an actor in its own right. And these men in, in the dugout. So it was, it was released in 1928, but it was set in 1918 in, in uh, Saint-Quentin, in the, in, the, in the dugout there. And food and the kind of the interactions between the men is just so fraught. And it's it's the unravelling of, of civilization as as they know it. And it ends with them having sandwiches because that's just way easier than... <laughs> than the rest of it. Nothing wrong with sandwiches. <laughs> New world order. Yeah. Isn't that always the way? <laughs> Do you have a grated carrot? <laughs> no mention of grated carrot. Pr- plenty of dubious tinned things yeah. and, and mystery meats. Um, Can I have some more cake? Yes. yes. We're going to finish now, Ross, so you have time to have some cake. What's the cake called again? Uh, Dolce Varese. Lovely. And it's nice. Delicious. Delicious. Yeah. That's all we've got time for this week. Our thanks go to Michael Keynes, Lucy Dallas, and Ros Deneen. Now eating cake. Make sure you've bought at least one subscription to the TLS as a festive gift this year. I'll be checking. We'll take a break for the festivities, but we are producing a cash in bone idol best of the podcast in 2018. So listen out for that. Until then, from Thea, me, and everybody at the TLS, have a very happy Christmas and a suitably literary new year. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.